Everything that you learn to play, that means that if you displace it by 16th note or eighth note or triplet, whatever the whatever the grouping is, it actually really changes the sound of the lick or the of the phrase that you just played. The accents on different parts of the beat, it just makes it sound like a whole different thing. So if you already have the muscle memory to, to play something, to play a phrase, it, it actually takes work to like try to hear it from a different place. It takes mental work. It doesn't take, you know, the muscle work, but it's funny how like as soon as you displace it and then try to play the same lick, because you're thinking about it differently, your muscles don't work. Even though you think that they should, even though you're playing the exact same phrase, even with the same accents, because you're thinking about it differently, it's, it trips you up. So what I do is I try to learn every possible subdivided um, displacement of every of every phrase and so that's what i'm doing when i'm when i'm using independence i might play like quarter notes with my left hand or some repetitive pattern and if i keep that going and then i do the displacement that's a way of forcing myself to displace it and know i'm actually doing it and not just mentally trying to do it and failing like the added benefit of that is that for all of the material that your fingers get familiar with you have more freedom to just go because it doesn't matter what beat you end up on you have the ability to hear all of that material from any point so like if i'm I'm doing a run i do an arpeggio i go up the keyboard and i'm in a place where i want to play a certain lick or a certain phrase it, it doesn't matter where i end up like i can stop wherever i want and play that phrase and i'm going to be able to hear it and sound intentional as i'm playing it so it's like training yourself to believe the mistakes because they are mistakes because you've spent so much time practicing them as intention. Hello, welcome back to the Keys Coach podcast. My name's Adam and this is the podcast where I sit down with piano, keys and synth players and talk about their life in music. Thanks so much for clicking on this episode. It's a biggie. Today we're chatting with the incredible Dennis Ham. Dennis has spent the last decade playing keyboards with Thundercat and regularly plays with Lewis Cole and Alice Smith. In addition, he has toured the world, performing in over 50 countries with artists like Jonathan Butler, Chris Cornell, Babyface, Kenny Loggins, and Michael McDonald. This was such an amazing conversation. We recorded this back in December. And in this episode, you will learn why it's so important to think like a producer when playing in a band what having big ears really means, and why Thundercat doesn't tame down the music for stadium gigs. We also talk about how you can develop rhythmic independence between your hands as a keys player, and we also do a deep dive on music and emotion, and we chat all things root perception. I hadn't actually heard of this until my chat with Dennis, but it was absolutely fascinating. I so enjoyed this conversation, and I really can't wait for you to hear it. Before we dive in, we've been releasing a bunch of new content over on the YouTube channel. Go and check that out. I just did a video all about how you can play more like PJ Morton. And I went through a live version of his cover of How Deep Is Your Love and take you through some of the things he's doing on the keys. So go and check that out. There's also some free PDF lesson books over there you can download so you can practice all of this stuff at home. Okay, let's get into it. Here is the conversation I had with the amazing Dennis Han. Dennis, thanks so much for coming on, man. It's uh, so good to see you. Um, yeah, how are you doing? You're in Los Angeles at the moment. It looks pretty sunny. Yeah, it's pretty nice here, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's good to meet you. Yeah, you too. It's been, um, I've sort of been checking out your stuff all uh, since I knew you were coming on. I've, had a, I've been away for the weekend, um, chilling out with family, and I've been uh, every sort of, every time I've had a little break away, I've been checking out videos and sort of looking looking through your stuff. So, so much I want to ask you about. Um, I sort of don't know where to begin, really. I think that was the thing that, just to sort of hit it straight off, like, that was the thing that really struck me about you when I was watching all your different stuff. Like, I've watched a lot of your stuff with Thundercat, obviously, and Alice Smith and Noah, and then also some other things you've done, and like this amazing app you seem to be in the middle of developing, and... It just sort of struck me that you 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 strive so many different genres in your playing. I kind of wanted to ask you straight off: Is that something you've always wanted to do? Is 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 it just like the breadth of what you do? Is that something that's always kind of attracted you to music? I mean, what? How would you describe what you do if some you meet someone down the down in a bar and they say, "Dennis, what do you what do you do for a living?" What do you say? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of answers to many of those questions. <laughs> um, for as far as genres go. Um, I, you know, I think that was just born from having lots of interests growing up. My first interests were like uh, Bruce Hornsby and yeah. and then I gradually um, moved on to, to more jazz music and salsa and Latin stuff and 
pop and always loved rock like in high school um so and then as a musician um even before i moved to la just saying yes to every gig that came every offer every i mean the first band i ever toured with was a country band out of bakersfield uh where i'm from so um yeah saying yes when you're when when i was a, a young musician uh, taught me a bunch of different styles and I, I just tried to make music. Um, I love music and it's enjoyable to listen to. And I, so I just try to make music that I enjoy listening to and it happens to be a lot of genres. So I read, I read a interview with you and it said, uh, that you had several or quite a lot of different piano teachers growing up. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I thought that was so interesting because, uh, you kind of went, went through piano teachers quite quickly and I kind of wondered, I wondered why that was. I sort of, uh, would love to know about that really. Um, just, they each brought something else to the table. And I think the main reason though, was I had trouble practicing what they wanted me to practice. Right. I would, I have, I, I learned, um, my ear was pretty developed. And so I would, I would learn, you know, songs from Star Wars or, mm. you know, off the radio or whatever. And, um, you know, they wanted to teach you out of method books or classical music that I wasn't really less interested in listening to at that point. So I, my parents would just be like, you know, you're not really practicing and we're wasting our money. So <laughs> then I, I, when I would quit or they would, <laughs> they would fire a teacher, I would, you know, I'd still be working on the piano. So then they'd eventually find someone else and, yeah. which I'm grateful for because when I was, I think eight or nine, um, I started with this teacher who taught me the F blues scale right. and how to improvise. F blues. And so for like four years, I just played the F blues scale nonstop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Master the F blues. And, uh, <laughs> I feel like every piano player goes through that, don't they? They find the blues scale yeah, and then yeah. suddenly well, it's like, Oh wow. You know, yeah. something introduces you to improvisation yeah. at least, uh, and for me, it was that scale. And then um, I actually got to meet my college professor when I was um, early teen. Um, and he taught me like D Dorian and how I could just play fourths like up and down. Yeah. And it's so easy and I could just jam on that. So um, yeah, anyway, I'm grateful for all the different teachers, even if it was because I was a lazy student. Right. Yeah. I mean, I had a similar experience with not wanting to practice what I was I mean, I, I don't know if you have this in the States. Do you have like the whole grade system thing where you go through and you kind of do grade one, piano grade two? They have those in the method books and in, I think there's like a Suzuki method. Yeah. I, I never went through anything like that. I mean, the method books I had had levels and grades, but I, like I said, I bounced around so much. Yeah. I didn't really, didn't really do them. Yeah, no, that sounds really good. And obviously you were so driven to do it because you were just kind of like practicing in your own time anyway. You know, it was clearly something that you were... Uh, it's weird, isn't it? How I, a lot of people I've spoken to have had like the piano they when they were growing up, especially in those like formative, formative years, like you said, eight or nine, they kind of had the piano they were learning with their teacher, which was like one separate thing, and then what they were doing in their spare time, which is completely different. And I'd super interesting. The whole reading music thing has never come too naturally to me. I saw an interview with you actually uh, a little while ago, and it was saying you you were talking about how you recently put chord symbols all over a uh, piece of sort of music that you had to sight read and that was the way that you that was the way you processed it and that's very much the way I've I've sort of dealt with it my and I like what you said you said um you 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 know you play with your ears not your eyes you know and I think that was that was so interesting you know how was your how was your reading now yeah I mean um sight reading speed I I could it's like an it's like a muscle if you don't exercise it it's not yeah. It's not going to stick around. <laughs> when I was playing in a church uh, and having to read it out of a hymnal and come up with accompaniment parts, but I'd have to actually read the notes first. I found that I was doing this, all this chord analysis processing in my head. So after this, you know, first or second time of reading through it and building this chord chart in my head, yeah. now I'm just able to kind of improvise over it. And um, so what was kind of a, a, a weakness is also a strength because I'm, I'm doing analysis that other people aren't necessarily having to do when they have that direct eye to finger music notation to, to music um, connection that I don't really have. Yeah, no, exactly. I don't have that at all. And I imagine for the sort of work you do now, it, are there many occasions where you have to read music? Um, yeah, occasionally. I, I, um, just this last year, I got to play with uh, Gino Vanelli, mm. and he's quite the arranger and the piano right, player. Okay. Um, and so he brought in some music. 
uh, yeah, so I ended up adding chord charts to it, but there's still a lot of, he was very meticulous about the voicing, so he had to, had to nail it exactly how he wanted it. So, yeah, um, but I really appreciate that. And there's really no other way. Um, this app I'll tell you about um, that I'm developing is, is analyzes chord symbols, but, um, and kind of helps build charts as well. But yeah. if you want to, if you want to dictate exactly how you want it to sound, you actually have to notate it <laughs> out exactly. They're, the chord symbols are their own. They've all got their, yeah. and that is that is definitely something I want to ask you about later because I've already noticed you just sent me a beta through for your your app, and I've um, been try, I've just been quickly trying it out, and the chord symbol thing was the thing that actually <laughs> I really latched onto the way you spike your chord symbols, which is really really interesting. We we'll get to that. We we'll get to that. I was reading as well um, that you also learnt drums when you were growing up, and I just wondered how has that? Do you feel that's impacted your piano playing in 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 any way? Kind of coming at it from that rhythmic angle straight off. Yeah, and I've and I've gravitated to listening to piano players that were drummers as well, like right. Chick Corea, yeah. Gonzalo Rucaba, and yeah, just kind of I mean treating it like a percussive instrument. But yeah, I mean I I learned drums in school because there's no piano in marching band, so yeah. um, you know <laughs> in concert band you got to learn percussion or something. Yeah, it, yeah. it was. Uh, it, it I feel like I I really appreciate having spent all those years studying drums because I listened to drummers really intently. Right. And so that means when, like, as soon as I moved to LA, especially, I just started connecting with a lot of drummers, okay. um, connecting musically and like, um, just, we would, you know, those moments when you, when you have, uh, like a psychic moment in, in a, in a jam session yeah. or, or any music playing where you look at each other and like, how do we just play that exact same thing at the same time? Yeah. And, that just kept happening with all the time with different drummers. Wow. And it's probably because I just, I just listened to drums so much. Yeah. So. Do you still play much drums now? Or is it, is it mainly all piano? Not even when you're producing or anything or. Yeah, a little bit, not, but not too much. I, I, I just moved into another place. I don't really have space for my drums. So they're sitting in the garage for oh, the last okay. three years. Fair, fair, fair. That, yeah. yeah. And they're not, they're not great for neighbors, are they as well? <laughs> Yeah. No, that's yeah. true. <laughs> there is that as well. Um, so, you, did you you went to study jazz? Was that? Am I right in thinking that? Yes. Yeah, so like that was obviously a, quite a big moment for you. Uh, do you want to just talk a little bit about what that was like and where, where you went to study and how you found that whole experience? Well, I just studied in my hometown uh, at Cal State Bakersfield as a state school. Um, uh, I had a great piano teacher there who was the head of the jazz department there, mm. uh, Doug. And um, but he was also very open to students kind of writing their own curriculum. Right. So he just was a big proponent of um, of creativity and and improvisation and composition. So um, most a lot of the you know the inspiration instead of necessarily feeling it from um, you know uh, this vibrant jazz community which Bakersfield didn't have. It was just a really small community. Yeah. There were some great players and I, and I loved playing with them. But um, as far as being pushed by like a community of players, yeah. like I had to, I was just basically inspired by listening to CDs and driving down to LA and seeing concerts. And yeah. like I went to, uh, I went to see Gonzalo Rubalcaba when I was in college um, playing at Yoshi's in San Francisco or in, uh, in Berkeley or Oakland. I went all six nights and he was playing with Tony Williams and I sat like front row with my little, I snuck in my little lapel mic oh and my, my dad recorder. And like, I've got, <laughs> I still have that stuff somewhere on mini dat recorder. But so, yeah, that was kind of my, my biggest education was yeah. listening to CDs and, and checking guys out. And transcribing Transcri stuff, yeah, exactly. Transcribing. What kind of when you say transcribing, what kind of things were you doing? Were you playing along with the recordings? Were you learning like all their lines? What writing it out? What kind of thing? Or all of the above? Yeah, I would write. I would learn to and play along and write out um, like a lot of the improvisational solos of Chick Corea and Gonzalo yeah. Bocaba and Brooklyn and. I saw yeah. I saw a little playlist that you had on your Spotify that you'd linked to all your favorite pianists and I noticed so much Kenny Kirkland in there because I'm so into him as well and he's another pianist for me that just spans like all of the stuff he did with Sting but then was playing with Branford Marseilles and all these other people and I just kind of think he is he's just his, his he's just got such a voice on the piano that I feel that just same with Chick Corea as well I mean yeah are there any particular 
solos that you transcribed that you just think, wow, that was that really changed stuff for me? Um, well, I dug into a couple of the Gonzalo Rubalcaba solos um, on his album Diz with uh, Ron Carter, okay. and I think that's with is that with Jack Dejanet? Oh, no, that's with uh, Julio Barreto, I think, Cuban drummer. But anyway, um, I loved Gonzalo's solos because he didn't play traditional jazz lick language. Yeah, his improvisations were all it just they all sounded so fresh and and different. So I was trying to get inside of that. Um, and then some chick. There's a Christian McBride album. I think it's called Number Two Express. Oh, okay, I, I might be in the album wrong, but the uh, the opening track is called Whirling Dervish. Right, and that was. That's with Chick Corea and um, Jack DeJanet and uh, who else was on that? Yeah, I guess it was just a quartet. Um, and so they played this blues in F sharp. Right. And it just the whole band kind of takes it kind of a just sounds really fresh too, probably because they're playing it in F sharp. And that's yeah. just such a key that isn't called very often. So that's that solo was is really special. Chick solo on that one. I mean, the whole track is really really remarkable but mm. but i find myself listening to the dynamic all the interplay between all the musicians as much as this solo yeah 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 100 percent. that has led to i think of some musicians that i really gel with and i really appreciate they they do this as well they think like producers mm. and so even and when you're playing other genres of music too like if everybody in the band is thinking like a producer then you're thinking about interplay mm. and um you know what does my part mean in relation to everything else that's happening and so it's kind of this broad picture of the whole thing and we're not just playing solo instruments and solo piano and making solo piano records we're we're playing infra, you know band music <clears throat> group music so I've always thought it'd be amazing if you found I've never actually found two people to do this with I, I probably should have should have tried to do this but um, I thought it would be really cool if like a drummer, a bass player and a uh, keys player or piano player tran all transcribed the same track like separately, <laughs> like note for note and then came together and played it just like that would be so cool to kind of like you're saying the interplay. I mean, that would be really fun, you know, it really would. Wow. Just to kind of shoot that would be trip too to listen to that yeah exactly and to, just to experience because obviously you would have learned what a lot of people would have played in the moment but um yeah i just think that would be so interesting to do and you'd probably learn a huge amount from you'd probably that would probably be like you know people talk about transcribing turbocharges a lot of their practice in a lot of ways i imagine if you were playing along with the recording and but feeling it in, oh yeah. yeah it would just be insane i'd love to love maybe that's something i'll set myself a, a bucket list challenge well, that's a good one that's a good challenge uh, for for you and a couple of mates, but the uh, I think that points out why it doesn't usually sound good to play a rehearsed transcribed solo yeah. along with a live band. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not you're not you know. into playing with the same stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know. Exactly. Yeah. So obviously, you you were studying kind of jazz and all this stuff, getting all your your kind of like developing all this kind of language and vocabulary on the piano. What was the next stage after your studying? How did you how did you begin kind of moving into playing with various bands and kind of developing your voice as a session player or as a jazz musician, however you describe yourself? Um, well, that transition, I mean, studying in college and playing with bands was happening at the same time. And I'm sure it does with most musicians. So, yeah, it wasn't really a, a transition. It was just kind of an ongoing thing. Yeah. Um, I mean... I, I say that because um, in in high school I was playing drums more. Mm -hmm. um, I was you know I was still playing piano and taking piano lessons as well. But um, when I hit college, then I was kind of primarily just piano. So and that's when the the professional work started coming too. But it was just local gigs around town. And yeah party bands and so important all of those first gigs though isn't it because you learn so much about but just about performing and learning having to learn a bunch of tracks and learn a learn a repertoire and working with different musicians I kind of think those although a lot of people are kind of like oh those first gigs you know oh, they were you know whatever they're actually so formative in your development I think you know yeah they, they are they're important I didn't move to LA till I was uh, late 20s so um you know I was playing like 40 gigs a month in my little hometown 
like wow. 500,000 people. Um, <laughs> and so, but then when I moved to LA, uh, it, it started being like jazz clubs and mm. like, um, where people would actually pay tickets, yeah, <clears throat> buy tickets to come see you. And, um, and then playing with some of my heroes, like within the first couple of years, I was like, wow, these playing local gigs in LA is with people like Jimmy Haslip and yeah. Will, Will Kennedy and, uh, Jimmy Brandley, who was Gonzalo Rubalcaba's drummer for yeah. when, he, when they first got out of Cuba, and yeah, yeah, man, that's that must have been um that must have been so exciting doing those doing those gigs. Do you have a particular one that you're like, wow, that uh, that gig really just made me think, oh wow, I just actually want to just do this full time. This is my this is why I'm doing this. Do you remember any particular experiences that you had? Like that, this is the music I want to do. Yeah, full-time, or you know, or? this is just like this is this is just why I'm doing this. You know, when you just have a gig that's oh, quite right, early right. on, that you're no, just okay. like, yeah. I mean, I really loved the Yellow Jackets when I was yeah. in college, high school, college, and so playing gigs with Will and with Jimmy Haslip, mm. that was really confirming and validating. Amazing. Uh, plus, the community in um, in LA was so warm, and it wasn't. I I, I hear you know cutthroat stories about New York being really challenging and that's what you go there for, right? To cut your teeth and, and to be pushed to work hard to be a better player. But you know, there's that in LA too, but it just didn't seem as cutthroat and it was really uh, supportive. Like, I don't know if you know, um, Taylor Eichstee, the piano player in yeah, New York. I know, yeah, I know the name. Yeah. He's from San Francisco area and he was in LA when I moved here. And I remember uh, going to a jam session at uh, the Jazz Bakery, which we used to have. It's no longer around, I don't think. And I heard Taylor, he was in the house band, and he just was the most musical, just burning solos, but then the most musical comp- comper yeah. behind soloists and stuff. Just super big ears, huge ears. And yeah. uh, so uh, I was really impressed by him. And then this 16-year-old kid gets up and is one of the first at the when they opened up the jam session and he um he just sounds like mccoy tyner he's like ripping just incredible 16 year old and then um i got up there and i was like well i can't do any of all that (laughs) stuff so i'm just uh, i'll just try to make music and do what i do yeah and uh i found some musicality in in it i did and then afterwards taylor came up to me and said he really enjoyed my playing and i was like wow this is this is a really warm welcome and i feel like i know for a fact like you know i don't have the same skill set as as him or other other musicians but um to hear someone like that who's at the top of, of his game like confirming that what i have to say musically was was worth listening to that that was really impactful yeah. that was and that was in the first year of moving to la and that so i'm grateful for that it kind of shaped my progress going forward and my you know, just it, it helps eliminate like fear and just like doing it for the joy yeah. and, and focus on doing doing it for the joy of things of music. Well, yeah, 100 percent, man. I, I completely agree. And sometimes just that little bit, that little confidence boost, which someone could just yeah. give, a, give us a bit of a throwaway comment can actually be so impactful, you know, in your journey and, and can just give you that confidence to keep going and to keep on pushing it and trying to do different things. Oh, man. Yeah. So, so important. So. You're in Thundercats band, which must be an absolute, like, incredible experience. I just can't think of many other musicians that I'd love to be playing with. Can you just tell us how that whole opportunity came about? So um, I first met his brother, Ronald Bruner, um, the incredible drummer. Um, he was, he was like, yeah. 19 years old, coming th- and he came through Bakersfield playing with Kenny Garrett. And... Um, I went up and talked to him afterwards and he ended up, um, I gave him a CD of this little funk band that I had at this local, and, and I was still living in Bakersfield. He ended up subbing for our drummer and playing a few shows with us. And so then when I moved to LA, I was, I was playing with him a little bit and he introduced me to his brother um, right after, like mm-hmm. within the first year or so after Thundercat's first album came out on Brain Freer. So, uh, yeah, so he was just playing with a lot of different musicians at the time. Thundercat was. And um, and for this band, like we were playing in Vail, Colorado at the Snowball Festival. It was zero degrees wow. outside outdoor festival. Yeah. Freezing. So it was just miserable. And that's zero Fahrenheit. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And um, so no rehearsal. I showed up with my phone, my phone and like some notes written on notepad or something. And um, like my phone was freezing, like the 
the screen was freezing up, turning yellow, and like I couldn't feel my fingers. Like it was just the yeah, most yeah. horrendous condition. So that was my audition, basically, and <laughs> uh, for this, this festival. And um, and then the next, and we had an auxiliary bass player for that gig, so it was uh, like a quartet. And then for the next gig, he called me for the next one, and um, the bass player couldn't make it or something, so we just did trio, and I played key bass. And I don't think he'd done a gig with too many gigs like that, with playing his music with with key bass. But it worked really well, and and I kind of been playing with him ever since. That was 2012, and um, just you know, we did the the what are they like sewer tours where you <laughs> where you're in a sprinter van driving 30 days around mm-hmm. the entirety yeah. of, of the country with one with a tour manager who's also the driver and like schlepping your own gear up up and down the stairs and little clubs in Philly and playing playing you know 100 200 like capacity rooms and um so it went from that now to you know a decade later like opening for the chili peppers and stadium yeah man i saw that it looks incredible yeah it must be an amazing journey to see that yeah you know it's been amazing and um and we're still playing the same you know jazz harmony improvisational music yeah still at half the audience with you know with the deer and headlights look like <laughs> what am I hearing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good, man. I think I think one of the things that I think about Thundercat um in particular is I think you're doing a huge amount for the community in terms of in terms of uh opening people up to that music that wouldn't normally see that music. I think it's like a really powerful thing you're doing because That's you're great. opening for a band like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, they won't necessarily be expecting Thundercat to come, particularly with the kind of music. And I imagine you don't change the set. Do you, do you tame it down at all or do you just go for it? I, I try and he doesn't let me. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> I've been making set, helping make set lists for a while because no, no one else seemed to be doing it. So I was like, I don't want to have to be thinking of songs to play in the middle of a stadium <laughs> gig. Yeah. So, but yeah, he's like, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not changing the set. We're not, we're just going to play like, yeah. It's almost like those situations he wants to play more because he's like, let's show him what, what we're all about. Like, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Let's just do our thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh man. That's so good. I think that, that that's one of the things that really struck me actually, when I was watching, uh, I, I watched like a bunch of, a bunch of your live videos, including the tiny desk and all these things is the communication between you all. I'd love to get a bit of an insight into that. Has that's obviously developed oh, cause you've been playing together for so many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the really interesting things, particularly as a trio as well. I think you develop such a kind of intimate kind of knowledge of each other's playing. You, I guess you have these tunes. Do they do they change a lot each time you play them? Or are there kind of set structures? Do the orders of things change? And how is that kind of communicated on the stage? Um, it depends on the material. So certain songs um, lend themselves to more freedom. Right. But the the form of the, you know, the melodies and the, the order of the sections is pr- pretty much the same, um, but like segues in between songs and obviously solo sections or even sometimes tempos and stuff, those, those will change every yeah. show. Yeah, he's, he's uh, you know, every, Justin and Steven are really, uh, they have big ears as well. They're like, they're, listen, they're really, really good listeners. And um, so that, that's really important and um, it makes it really effortless. I've noticed that phrase, that the phrase uh, "big ears," um, and that's something that I've because I, I came to LA in January, and I I don't I mean I I think I've heard some like UK musicians use that phrase, but it's yeah. definitely something that I've noticed like more US musicians or US based musicians use. So, if you describe someone as having big ears, what what I mean, it's probably a really hard thing to explain. But what what do you think it's really that means? It's easy actually. It's easy. No, no. Okay, nice. It just means they listen. Okay. They listen to the other music happening that that on the stage that's that they're not producing <laughs> themselves right. they're listening to everything else that's going on um as intently as they're listening to themselves right you know yeah i don't know if, if you notice when you're listening to individual musicians within a band context that you can really tell tell who's only listening to themselves yeah. or what percentage they're listening to themselves and, and everyone else and like it might be 90 10 or it might be 50 50 yeah. or it just makes for better music when everyone's listening. Everyone's got big ears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there is there a way you think you can practice that? 
Is there a way you think you can kind of, you know, what strategies could someone do use to try and kind of open their ears up and develop their listening? Ooh, yeah. You know what? I used to say, don't practice so much solo on your instrument, <laughs> but right. that's not great advice because <laughs> you should practice a lot solo on your instrument. I think one of the other tools is actually shedding what some of the other people are playing, some of the yeah. other parts, like learn the drum parts. Um, if you don't have drums, like tap it out, like play or play the rhythm that the drummer's playing on your instrument, like in right. some way, or learn all the bass parts. Um, and then try playing them all at the same time. Like I love learning how to, how to, even if the piano player isn't playing any of the bass parts in the recording, learning how to play it with the left hand while I'm playing piano parts on the right hand, because if you can play it, then you can hear it. Right? Yeah. If, so I think that's probably the best way to, to practice that is, um, and especially shedding like at the same time, playing all that stuff at the same time. Nice. One of the things I really noticed um, from your from your playing, and it, it really came across to me when I was watching all these different videos, was the interplay between your hands when you're playing, mm. and the the fact that your left hand could be doing something completely different. And I I saw a couple of posts that you did on Instagram about this, all to do with kind of rhythmic independence and how you practice that. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that and why rhythmic independence is so important to you and, and actually how you practice it? It's to do with muscle memory, right, you believe? I, I think uh, it has to do with muscle memory, but even more importantly, it has to do with um, with being able to hear. Right. Being able to hear the parts and how they work together. And yeah, you can, you can, what I think I was saying in that post was that you can train your brain through your muscles. Yeah. So yeah. You can, so it's almost like the opposite way of thinking about it. Um, yeah, I also love getting inside rhythms and, and approaching them from all directions. So displacing everything that you learn to play, that means that if you displace it <clears throat> by 16th note or 8th note or triplet, whatever the, whatever the grouping is, it actually really changes the sound of, of the lick or the, or the phrase that you just played with emphasis on the accents on different parts of the beat. It just makes it sound like a whole different thing. So if you already have the muscle memory to, to, to play, to, to play something, to play a phrase, yeah. then you actually can, it, it actually takes work to like, try to hear it from a different place. Rhythmically like, a different place, like a different, a different placement. Yeah. But it takes mental work. It doesn't take, yeah. it doesn't take, you know, the muscle work, but it's funny how like, if you, as soon as you displace it and then try to play the same lick, because you're thinking about it differently, your muscles don't work. Yeah, of course. Like, yeah. Even though you think that they should, even though you're playing the exact same phrase, even with the same accents, because mm. you're thinking about it differently, it's, it trips you up. So what I do is I try to learn every possible subdivided displacement of every of every phrase. And so that's what I'm doing when I'm when I'm using independence. I might play like quarter notes with my left hand or some repetitive pattern. Yeah. And if I keep that going and then I do the displacement, that's 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 a way of forcing myself to displace it yeah. and know I'm actually doing it and not just mentally trying to do it and failing. Like if I'm playing those quarter notes in the left hand, I'm definitely thinking about those quarter notes. I'm thinking okay. about the phrase in a different way. So, but the added benefit of that is that for all of the material that your, your fingers get familiar with, you have more freedom to just go, <laughs> to let yeah. them go. Uh, because it doesn't matter what beat you end up on, you have the ability to hear all of that material from any point. So like if I'm, I'm doing a run, I do an arpeggio, I go up the keyboard and I'm in a place where I want to play a certain lick or a certain phrase, um, it, it doesn't matter where I end up. Like I can stop wherever I want and play that phrase and my, I'm going to be able to hear it and sound intentional as I'm playing it. Yeah. So it's like training yourself to believe the mistakes because they are mistakes because you've spent so much time practicing them as intention do you ever sing while you're playing is that a big part of what you do to kind of internalize things and hear things differently is that has that ever been a big part of what you do no um not not audibly um i am singing in my head though um right and i noticed that when i realized that i'm holding my breath <laughs> oh, a lot phrase and i'm inhaling in between phrases which is kind of weird. Um, I think a lot of people do that though. Um, and you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be breathing and stuff, but it's the same with exercise, like yeah. <laughs> hard and, and singing in general too. It's, that's why it's been hard to learn to sing background vocals with Thundercat, which 
as a trio, we're all trying to cover a lot of the parts from the records. But the hardest part is learning to breathe in, in the right places in between, you know, lines. And well, yeah. that's, that's the second hardest part. The first hardest part is <laughs> is using your voice as your instrument. Yeah. Or your secondary instrument. Well, even though my pian- the piano is supposed to, is feels like it's my main instrument that I sing through. Splitting yeah. your brain. Splitting your brain way. can be really, really hard. Hi, it's Adam here. I just want to quickly interrupt the podcast to ask you a very small favor. If you're getting lots of value from these conversations and want to stay up to date with all our latest episodes, please do subscribe to The Keys Coach wherever you get your podcasts. This means that you can continue to hear these great conversations and you'll be notified each time a new episode comes out. And if you're feeling even more generous, please do consider leaving us a review. This helps others to discover the podcast and join this community. Thank you so much for your support. Hit that subscribe button. Let's get back to the conversation. I also saw a, um, I also saw another post that you did about music theory in general, um, which just make you sometimes when you see these kind of like sentences, you can just see one sentence and it can just completely make you think differently about something. Um, and I, I want to read you back what you wrote, and I'd love to love to just hear you talk about why you wrote this. I think you just literally wrote this this up, and then that was it. You said music theory really does need to be reimagined following every genre's creation or evolution, and I was just like, <laughs> oh man, that is. <laughs> it's like your brain just goes like, oh, <laughs> and then sort of it's sort of too big a thing to try and think about. Um, what what did you mean when you wrote that? Well, it I feel like. Um... Theory is basically just music history. And so as we evolve and we merge genres and create new music, the theory, which is history, is is also changing or also yeah. should change. I also found that what you learn in in like, well, at least in like form and analysis class and learning class studying classical music in college, which is like advanced theory, it it doesn't cover a lot of the 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 music that we're um, playing every day, like the popular music, even jazz. And then jazz theory, I found, isn't really theory. It's uh, there's a few cats that actually have kind of a theory around it. That's like a logical foundational, like Barry Harris has like, I would say his method is kind of a a music theory or a jazz theory. But um, yeah, the rest of it's just kind of a method or like practice routines. And I don't know, Uh, I there's I feel like music theory needs to be rewritten so that it can it can um, work for all genres. That's one of the reasons why I wrote that statement too. Because not only should should I mean it would just be better that we we could have one theory that works for everything instead of having to rewrite theory. So maybe that's a better statement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you kind of mean do you mean harmonically, rhythmically, or do you mean like both? Do you mean like if you can maybe could you maybe give like an example of something you think actually that isn't you that particular aspect of harmony isn't useful for this or is doesn't work as well for this or Well, like for instance, why, why does how would you explain the blues? Why does the blues scale harmonically? Why does the blues scale work over ev- all 12 dominant chords <laughs> yeah that's a good point yeah like why it, it works you why? mean like why does c blues scale work over c7 d flat 7 d7 is that what you mean yeah yeah, yeah. why is that a one size fits all why like what what's the theory that explains that i i, I don't know yeah. yeah and i don't think most music teachers could tell you so yeah um yeah i think there should be, there should be, we should have answers for that stuff if we're i mean the blues is like one of the most common and the pentatonic scales like those are some of the most common things that you hear in almost all genres um so why don't we have a good explanation (laughs) for why it works over everything i mean that example of like over every single dominant chord that's kind of a real specific example but um no it's true though it's absolutely it's absolutely true and i think um yeah I, I, I don't know what the answer is. I've just actually written two theory books um, for a publisher. It's like they're, they're supposed to be pop and rock theory books and they're supposed to take you through right the way through from what's uh, like a note right the way through. And I think the main thinking behind them was that uh, so like you say, so many theory books come at it from a classical perspective and then don't reference any music that maybe you're already listening to or these kinds of things. But it was hard, you know, and it's hard. And as you're doing it, you're realizing that some of these things you're saying are, are kind of quite general statements and only apply to certain music and 
or this yeah. kind of thing and you realize it is it is yeah it's 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 a complex thing music theory it's a it's a very, what, what's your relationship with it do you kind of when you're playing are you are you thinking like do you, do you ever get to a point when you're playing when you're not thinking about kind of the theory at all and you're kind of very much just like more thinking about sound i i feel like i i there's some nice bridge happening between feel just feeling it and playing and not having to think and the the analysis the theory analysis because I feel like I'm doing it all at the same time. And right. it's, it's like, for me, it's not taking away from the, the flow state, the creative flow mm. state, to be also analyzing it and understanding what it is. That, yeah. And understanding too, though, I think it's important um, that it's not a, like when I said understanding what it is, that doesn't mean that's a one, there's one answer to what it is. There's right. multiple answers, depending on what genre you're thinking about, like, you can you can answer that question from all these different like theoretical frameworks so it's fun to like to kind of be conscious of that like where does where does why do i like if i'm really enjoying something and i'm thinking about what it comes from like that just helps me be a better uh, uh you know expressionistic um performer like better at expressing myself it's kind of kind of like emotional intelligence as a human being like if you understand where your emotions are coming from, you can communicate better with other people, right? So musically, I think that's true too. If you understand why you like something, what associations are there with it? And by something, it could be a phrase, it could be a chord progression, it could be a rhythm, it could be anything, any aspect of the music. This feels like a really good time to talk about your uh, your app you're developing, or your 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 startup, your company, or this this amazing thing called. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try and pronounce it. Sentisonics. Yeah, Sentisonics. Sentisonics, very nice. And and you just sent me a. Um, the reason why it's a really good link is because this all has a huge amount to do with emotion and what you feel when you hear or music. And I discovered this and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And then I began watching some of the videos and I kind of read a bit about it. It'd be great to hear from you if someone said to you, what is it? How do you, how would you describe it? What's your kind of, <laughs> like you call it like an elevator pitch, don't you? <laughs> right? that kind of thing. Yeah. What, if you had to describe it, what kind of thing, what, how, how would you put it into words? It's, it's basically coming at music theory from an emotional, the emotions that, that music evokes um, through, through a lens of, of emotion. So um, using emotion as function. Right. Um, and trying to initially, I was trying to quantify like the building blocks of complex harmony. And like, is there some like logical reason why these chords have all these multi-dimensional feelings? And like, can I figure out where all those feelings come from? And um, so, but there's a long story about why I was even asking that question. Um, uh, I could try to shorten the story. Yeah, but, man, uh, that'd be wicked. Basically, from playing Thundercat shows, um, we were opening for Flying Lotus for many years. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. He has an incredible visualization, like, show with computer animation and, like, light show. And, like, it's, like, as important as the music. And then we'd play a bunch of electronic festivals where there's a lot of artists, electronic artists that, are, that have similar shows. And, you know, we were always, like, the, li the one live band that's playing at these festivals or you know, opening for Fly Low, where we're, we're this live band, and then there's a bunch of, uh, of other producers and DJs and electronic music. So we never had like the crazy light show. We were just only, the show was just the music and the musicians yeah. on the stage and no tracks. We never play with tracks. It's all just live. And, you know, as the shows got bigger and bigger festivals and headlining spots and stuff, the question was, how can we make this into a bigger production worthy of these bigger events? Yeah, I just thought, well, if we if we are going to try to add some some visual element to make it a bigger spectacle, it needs to be representing the music that we're playing. Like, we don't just want this distracting thing that mm. is like pretty lights or impressive, intense lights or even computer animation. If there is computer animation, it should represent the harmony that we're playing and yeah. the, the emotions that we're trying to evoke. So I went down this rabbit hole of, of researching what exists out there for visualizing harmony and there isn't anything. no i bet there isn't no 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 yeah and that's partly because our understanding of how harmony connects to emotion 
is so limited. Because, mm. and I, as I found out reading three or 400 research papers over the last few years, that a lot of the musicians um, that are experts at emoting through their instrument aren't interested in doing research. And a lot of the researchers aren't interested in shedding out piano for 40 years. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. What, so, There's a big disconnect between those two worlds, isn't there? Yeah. Exactly. exactly. So, um, yeah. So I basically just wanted to make some cool animation and some cool art that could be played live. And mm. uh, there's some software like called Touch Designer yeah. and some other software that does reactive, like audio reactive uh, animation. So I'm trying to build um, this algorithm that like quantifies the emotions from harmony so that we can create this, you know, visual harmony, visual br uh, bridge and not necessarily to dictate how it should look. I, I still, I don't want to uh, take jobs away from visual artists. I want to mm. bridge so that we can collaborate together mm. with emotion, with our emotional intent as the, as the unifying bridge. So. Anyway, that's how Centasonics was born through this visualization. Man, that's I, so wicked. I, I mean, I have, a, I have a question for you, and it's kind of this is. I'm sure you get asked this a lot. Um, music can mean different things to different people, and I mean, if you take, for example, a song, uh, one song can be like an incredibly have a uh, or like a particular sound or a chord can have a particularly strong positive emotional. Uh, sort of yeah. affection for one person and then for another person it could be maybe a song that they heard when they were having to do something that you know at school they didn't want to do or you know and it can be you can associate it with negative so how do you find that middle ground of the kind of what it would mean for everyone who's listening or, or kind of a general kind of uh emotional do you see what i mean is there like a sort of totally well if you start with um if, if you start with well that's a great great thing to point out because uh even if you just take a major triad versus a minor triad. Yeah. Uh, if you go to some cultures <clears throat> and, and ask them if a minor, how a minor triad sounds to them, there's many cultures on the planet that will say it's, it's more positive or right. it's more celebratory or it's more than major and major. And actually there was a study in the Northern tribes of Pakistan where they said that major chords sounded odd and strange and, oh, wow. un, you know, there was uncomfortable. Yeah. And, um, and their music is all like fifth drones with a singer singing this mel these minor shapes on top of it. Yeah. So familiarity and enculturation is, is huge in, for your emotional response. Mm. But if you just look at say Westerners who are, have the internet, these tribal members didn't even have uh, internet access and Western music and major and minor tonality, you're going to find. Um, and I've found by asking hundreds of people over the last few years about um, their emotional responses to all 12 different dyads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When primed by a, a key center. So if you prime someone with... Yeah, you play C before it, like a big 5-1 yeah, or something. C major, if you play a yeah. C major cadence and then you play the dyads, they're going to give you 12 different emotional responses than if you primed them with C minor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be a different feeling. And so that realization made me realize that it's like, um, well, there's many realizations. There's a lot mm. to get into, but, but, uh, but I think there are some objective, um, common emotion, uh, descriptors that, that Westerners are gonna, are gonna report. Um, well, there's a lot of variation, especially with certain scale degrees, uh, yeah. and ads, but, um, there's a lot of agreement. I wonder what would happen as well if you. Like, cause I think you did a bit of this from what I saw, but I was thinking to myself, if you play say C and G and you have it like a C below it, or like you've heard the C key center, you know, a root and a fifth. If you then played an F below it, but then heard the C and the G, that would give you a completely different, maybe emotional response to hearing C and G in the context of C. Does that make sense? Exactly. So what you're talking about now is, is um, horizontal harmony. So, or over time, like what did you hear first? And then, yeah. Or yeah. So that's, that's another layer yeah. of, uh, of the analysis that I'm, that I'm working on. There's vertical analysis, which is treating an isolated chord like it's the entire piece. Mm. It's the, the end of existence. It's, <laughs> it's everything. Yeah. How does that feel when you, just, when you just play it alone? And then um, 
or when you prime it with with its root when you're not changing the root so what you just described is actually changing the root especially by playing an f lower yeah sounds like we first we had a c root and now we have an f root if you add an f really high maybe you haven't changed the root and maybe now Mm. it sounds more like a c sus right which might be similar to the vertical feeling of c to f yeah um, if that's the beginning and the end of everything um but you know there's a lot of of influencers of our root perception which uh like the register man you uh if you got into the world of advertising you which you probably don't want to do but <laughs> you if you could go to a brand and say look oh wow I, i've got this thing where i can you know particularly with this, like sonic branding which is those little those little kind of like or whatever you know for a for a for a brand or something man and you could say i've got scientific evidence that this will make you feel joy or this will make people feel right, right, right. you'd be um I mean, you might not have even thought of it for that reason, but um, you'd be sitting on a gold mine, man. Uh, well, that's why we have Synthesonics as a company now, because too many people were like, uh, you're on to something and you should probably make it a business and yeah, try to get some funding and get some patents and get some, I don't know, we'll see what happens. But we're on, the, we're on a journey right now. I'm entering a whole new world. Yeah, I bet, man. I did a little bit in that world during COVID, but we were looking at dementia and music and the power of that and how actually we we got quite far but then all of us who were kind of working on the project ended up kind of you know it, it just it was because it was basically like a lockdown project and then when the world opened up again we kind of all went out to do gigs and stuff but we were looking at whether um whether you could in the early stages of dementia whether someone could pre-learn some different kind of like sonic identities whether that's intervals or whether that's that and then as their dementia developed, because it goes into a different place in the brain, you could then use those sounds to remember certain things, whether that's people, and it will take you straight back there. I mean, you've all seen those videos, you've obviously seen those videos of what music can do to people with dementia. Mm-hmm. So I even wonder if there's a, and we kind of got into this thing about how you can actually, you know, there's a way as well that you can, uh, you can kind of haptic. I don't know if you've got into that world of haptics yet with your, with your, basically you can actually turn a sound into a, a an actual tactile thing as well so I imagine if you could have the visual and the and the haptics I mean that would be like you could actually feel it on you you know there was this whole thing we went down this massive rabbit hole man but oh, man. it sounds like you're yeah it was pretty full-on but um yeah it's a shame that, didn't, that you didn't continue with that there's that sounds really interesting I have a friend who did a who has a company called SingFit and he they um I actually recorded a bunch of old standards for, mm. for this app where they where therapists will help dementia and Alzheimer's patients yeah. um, with this old, old music that really helps them um, connect parts of the brain that haven't been wired, wired for, a, for while. a while. Yeah, exactly. But that sounds amazing to do that as uh, um, in the early stages though. And mm. actually. Well, you kind of set these things up as someone's just found out they've got dementia and then they begin learning these different sounds. So when it, do you see what I mean? Yeah. That I mean, sounds- I kind of yeah and we yeah anyway we just I'm doing this now which is the this is my my thing I'm working on you know but it's it's, it's interesting that you kind of have these crazy ideas where where do you see the company going what would you like what you know what do you have like kind of a vision or are you kind of keeping that a bit bit more sort of kind of secret until is it not known yet you know no I have a I have a lot of visions (laughs) I have a lot of of directions um I'm uh it's going to be dependent on what is what makes the most sense, what to tackle first. And, yeah. But, um, you know, education, um, live visualization and in health as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about some other applications in health, like, um, maybe social cue training for, and facial cue training for, for, um, uh, autistic patients. Right. You can attach some emotions to facial expressions and then teach through, harmony yeah 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 but yeah uh if if we were if syntasonics was making an impact on um academia um, in music education somehow that would be a dream you'd be pretty happy Uh, yeah 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 we have a we have a motto there's no wrong notes only hard feelings i like that that's good basically just meaning uh it's a kind of my, my my professor in college said there's no wrong notes only interesting choices (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah and basically yeah there i want i want to encourage uh exploration and creative freedom mm. uh, 
that's how I think music evolves. Yeah. And genres evolve and merge and someone had to play something that didn't fit with that genre and they had to try it. And at the first time they played it, it might've sounded wrong, but man, I can't wait to see where it goes. I've literally just been trying it out. You sent, you sent me a, a, a beta, a beta test and I've just been playing it. The thing that really struck me with it though, was the chord symbol analysis feature. And I thought, oh, wow, this is cool. Cause it's got for everyone listening, it's got a percentage uh, that it'll give you of the most likely chord symbol. Am I right? Because obviously in Logic, it will give you kind of like, oh, it is this. And quite often it's quite weird and it is, doesn't really make, you wouldn't ever see it on a chart. It's like, you know, and actually right. you've got about four different translations or five different translations of a particular chord. So can you just talk to me about how, how you developed that? Because that, that does look really kind of amazing. And I think there could be so many applications for that within other DAWs as well. So that is based on uh, root perception. Right. So it's giving you a percentage of likelihood that you're going to hear that named root of the chord as, as the root, as the foundation, as the emotionally grounding center. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So if I, I play, that. if I play, and also all, you said there are four or five uh, iterations of the chord symbol. It's actually every possible spelling of the chord for every sounding note. So every possible root is given a chord symbol. So what I had to do is make a, a chord analysis, um, you know, building script that will give you all of the craziest chord symbols and, and accurately, you know, notate them. So the weirdest chord symbols are going to probably have a, you know, 0.5% or like 1% yeah. that you're going to hear it as the root, but it's still there for all of you who want to want to choose to like think of it that way or spell it that way. But the winning root is probably grounding your emotions. So if I were to play an A flat major seven with a C in the bass, yeah. if I play it kind of in the middle of the, in the piano of the piano with the closed voicing, you'll probably hear it as an A flat. And it'll sound like a major chord and it'll sound like the yearning of the major seven in there, or the yearning and longing feeling. If I clunk a low C down at the bottom, maybe even a low C and a G at the bottom, now it sounds like C minor mm. with that added flat six with its yeah. eerie, you know, um, worrisome darkness, right? So you can, it's, it's a kind of a different way of thinking about chord symbols where you, um, you, you, choose the root based on how it feels. So wow. everything you're looking at there should be a kind of a good picture of how it feels. You know, as a jazz piano player, that a really consonant, bright, uplifting and enchanting chord is like C major 13 sharp 11, yeah. right? It's the most complex and consonant chord you can play, right? Mm. So it's nice to see it spelled that way and also to see the emotions from each of the scale degrees. Um, that's the other thing. If you're gonna, if I'm, if you're gonna quantify what each of the scale degrees from those roots mean emotionally, you got to get the root perception right. And so that's what I'm. That's what you'll also see on that display is uh, a list of of emotions that might be present. Wow. Um, and you can customize them too. If if it's not joy you're feeling, but contentment or gratitude or any of the other. Mm descriptors for the major third you can change it in the in this app too and reflect your own your own palette yeah your own palette exactly that's so cool and it does it by looking at the intervals within the chord and the and where the root and that's how it generates this i also saw this um other thing where it visualizes it because the the, the the visualizer that looks really colorful and moves about the screen in a big circle that isn't in this app just yet am i right Oh, that's a that's another demonstration of of root perception itself. Actually, that's okay. and that's not you're right. That's that's a touch designer animation that I worked on with a friend um, who's a brilliant animator. But we were just trying to demonstrate a concept of root perception when, especially when there's competing roots. Right. So if I play, uh, for, for instance, certain intervals are root supportive, you know, a fifth is like the most root supportive interval, right? Yeah. And that's present in the harmonic series. We learn from early, I mean, maybe even infancy that there's a fifth in the overtone series that is where, where our brain is learning is, is root supportive because we hear it in our mother's voice. And yeah. not only just in music, but in, in common Western music, but just in sound everywhere. And then the next 
especially in Western music, the next most root supportive interval is a major third. Yeah. That's mainly due to uh, our familiarity with Western music. And there are more major songs than minor songs in Western music and not so much the, uh, the overtone series there, which a lot of researchers wish that it was just because of the overtone series and that would make Westerners right, but they're not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's mainly due to, uh, familiar use in the music. So if a major third for Westerners is root supportive and I play an augmented triad, then each of those notes supports the other note, one of the other notes as a root almost equally. So, oh, I see. Yeah. So for example, C augmented, C supports it, E augment, E supports it, G sharp supports it because they're okay right i see g sharp supports the e c supports the a flat yeah vice versa they all support mutually support each other so i kind of was like what would it look like if pitches were represented as a color as a particle swarm that's that's this is like an artistic like visualization project that that is um competing for a dominant position in the center of the screen so if i play an augmented chord what would that look like if these different colored particle swarms are like battling. I guess that would be equal, like a triangle. Then would that be, or I don't know. Well, this is these are particle swarms of like you know little, little tiny pixels that are competing for the center position, and they have attracting forces to the center, and they have repelling forces from each other. If wow. depending depending on the relationship, so basically, I built this uh, system that visualizes the the root perception process. So augmented chords are like swarm swirling around the center and battling each other. Diminished chords with minor third, all yeah, minor, third, minor third intervals. Yeah. They don't have good, they don't have uh, root support. None of those notes support each other. In fact, a minor third isn't very root supportive for Westerners. So those, they kind of just kind of swarm peacefully around the outside oh. of the circle. So it's just a, it was just a, interesting like oh, interesting way of visualizing it yeah yeah that's so um, cool i love it i think i think yeah, i think you're definitely on something i love that phrase root perception as well because that's such a that's such a common thing of how you perceive the root of how you perceive a certain chord or it makes such a difference when you hear the when you hear the root you know if you think about all those rootless jazz voicings for example it makes a massive difference where you play the root how it makes you feel what the kind of the kind of whether it's like a you know if you play like a shell d minor voicing uh, you know, with F, A, A, C, F, A, C, and E. If I put a G below that, that feels so different if I put a B flat above that and it's suddenly Lydian. And it's like all of these different things are, that's definitely, you got you got a trademark root perception, I reckon. I don't know if you have trademarks in the US, but yeah, whatever it's called over there, you got to do it. <laughs> the, the cool part about what you just described and how the app works is that the color, so th- these aren't colors based locked to pitches. These are colors locked to scale degrees above roots. So right. yellow is always the major third. Oh, okay. And so, so if you play, if you just played that F, A, C, E voicing, it's probably going to be perceived as an F major seven. Yeah. The A is, the A is going to be yellow. Yeah. If you drop a B flat down there, then now the A turns to, turns to pink because it's the it's major, the major seven. seven. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, um, and if you right. drop a D down there, then the F turns blue because that's the third. See. Man, so I can imagine light shows like eventually and like all this kind of thing, you know, a live performance and all that kind of stuff. I can just really, I can see it. That's going to be so cool. Um, if people want to find out more about this, because obviously there are going to be lots of people listening to this that are like, wow, that sounds really interesting just to visualize what I'm playing. And how can, how can they do that? Uh, they can go to our socials and the website and um, we'll keep updating it with, uh, with um, as, the, as the project progresses. Um, it's centasonics.com and Centasonics on Instagram and amazing um, yeah they go check that out man well it's been so great chatting I always I always talk um I always ask at the end of each interview I say is there something you haven't done yet or some a person you haven't played with or a, a piece of music or like a style you haven't done yet is there something that you're like um I really want to do that and I just haven't had the, the chance to do that yet what, what's kind of next for you I, I want to do band live band composition with a bunch of like-minded producer minded uh musicians maybe aided by technology wow okay that uh maybe that's a little foreshadowing (laughs) but um 
I, I would love to do, because I, I love improvisation, but I also love songs and the mm. composition. And it would be so great to work with, with people live doing that where, you know, we're all just coming up with, um, with music that isn't just like the jam session that stays on the same two chords for 30 minutes. Well, people solo on it, like yeah, yeah, yeah. group composition where everyone's focused on building songs. Amazing. Be fun. Have you checked out? There's a, I'm going to give a shout out to a guy who I are really good friends with called Tom Barrell. He lives in, he lives in Berlin. He's an amazing guitarist. He plays with loads of people over here. He's an incredible guitarist, but he's also built this, um, machine <laughs> using Ableton and all these different synth things. So you can do live improvisation in the moment and kind of create these amazing sounding things. And everyone kind of has an iPad and they play about with like this. I'm kind of not explaining it very well and he could explain it a thousand times better. But we we, we had a like during COVID, we played loads on it and we had these jams and stuff. But it's in it's incredible that whole thing about live improvisation, but with technology and all of these all these kind of things so yeah you should definitely check him out he's, he's doing some amazing stuff um but yeah i can't wait to see that it sounds like sounds like a really interesting project that um and kind of very different maybe to some of the other stuff you've done you know that's that's really interesting yeah thanks man um thanks so much it's been so great chatting um if people want to uh, go and find out more about you where can they where can they go and do that uh my socials i'm, I'm kind of more active on instagram and um I think Instagram's probably the best. Dennis Ham Keys. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. And I'm going to link a bunch of videos uh, that I've been watching of, um, of Dennis playing. Uh, I'll link those tiny desks and some other things as well. Dennis, thanks so much, man. It's been great chatting. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening and a massive thank you to Dennis for coming on the podcast. So many incredible insights. He's an unbelievable musician and it was so great to chat to him. Go and check out all the links in the description and definitely go and hear him play live if you get the chance. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday, but until then, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and I'll see you in the next episode.